and Meshach's going to be doing the scripture reading this morning. We'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 down to verse 7, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Good morning. Our scripture reading is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 7. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thine soul and with all thy might. Verse 6. And these words which I commanded thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto children, unto thy children, and they shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if your soul is satisfied in our Lord this morning. Oh, I hope you have your Bibles this morning. Uh, we'll be in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 again this morning, but then also if you could drop a piece of paper into 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be there very quickly. I want to say thank you to those of you that have been visiting with us over the last several weeks. It's a privilege to have been bringing to you the series on godly parenting, and by God's grace and uh, according to his plan, I think today, this morning, I'm going to expand our teaching out beyond just parents uh, to us as godly living. The principles that we've seen over the last few weeks n- apply not just to parenting, but they also apply in other areas. And as we've seen the last two weeks, however, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, we saw that we're to be teaching our children mainly teach them two things. Teach them to know God and teach them to obey God. We teach them to know God and we teach them to obey God. And we took that from Deuteronomy chapter 6, so if you have that there, I'll read verse 4 down to verse 7 again. I'll make point from this. Look at Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently, intentionally, consistently, diligently teach them to your children. Talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou risest up, uh, liest down when thou risest up. And something that I want to point out this morning, because we've spoken the last four weeks about the way we should be teaching these things to our children. This morning I want to point out the fact that there's four verses there, and only one of them spoke about children. The first three verses talk about you. And so if you would, have a look closely with me here. O Israel, listen, pay attention. Our Lord is one Lord. He's not plentiful like the gods of this world where we would allow our hearts to go after. Yes, those Canaanite gods were wooden idols or metal statues, but for ours they take on a different form. They look like 
finances and popularity and success and things that the world would say, these are the ways that you should go, and instead we should have our hearts satisfied by the greatest treasure of our heart, the Lord Jesus. Where does your heart go? The Lord our God is one Lord, not pulling us in many different directions. And then notice the words of verse 5, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, can I just make a quick moment? Because in modern English, we don't distinguish in our words, we don't distinguish you plural from you singular. When I say you, I could mean you as one person or you as a group. And in modern English, we don't do that. But in Old English, there is a difference. When we come through these Old English words, we come across words like thou and thy and ye. Modern English, that doesn't really mean it. We just go thou, it's you. Thee, it's you. Ye, it's you. But in Old English, it had a meaning. And that Old English ties directly back to the Old Hebrew that it was written in. In Old Hebrew, it, when he said thou, it meant you, singular. And so allow that to sink in this morning so that when Moses spoke these words and he said, Hear, O Israel, as a group, listen, your Lord is one, but thou, singular, individual person, love the Lord. Love the Lord with all your heart. This is not a collective drawing of all of the people of Israel to, oh, okay, all of us love God with all of our hearts. No, this is you, individual, because you'll never be able to teach your children how to love God if you personally don't love God with all of your heart. And so I see these three verses. You can see it in verse number six, continued. These words that I command thee, you, singular, the words that I command you, this day should be in your heart. So before you can ever teach them to your children, they have to be internalized for yourself. One thing that teachers learn is that in order for them to teach a subject, they have to know it at a deeper level than they're going to ever be able to teach it. And in order for us to teach our children how to follow God and how to love God, we have to follow God and love God ourselves. It has to be in us. And so with this thought in mind, I'd like to expand out our teaching today. I know that over the last few weeks, some of you have patiently sat and listened to a series on godly parenting, and you say, I'm not a parent. Maybe you're not yet at that point of life where you will have children, or maybe like me, you're past the point where your children are already grown. Maybe you're at a point where you're saying, I don't know, but maybe God will give us children in the near future. Maybe you're just a child yourself. You say, I'm just a child. I'm not going to have kids for a long time. These things haven't really applied to me. And so this morning, I want to expand that teaching out. And we take a look at godly living. Instead of just godly parenting, I want to take the time to look this morning at godly living. So come with me over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter number 1. In the book of 1 Peter, we started our year off in 1 Peter, and I want to draw our attention back to 1 Peter and the need 
to live holy, he's going to be very particular about making that statement. And if you were with us in the opening series in the year, we pointed at two verses here. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Now, before I read them, I just want to remind you a little bit about what was going on when Peter wrote this book. Most likely, it seems like historically, the Apostle Peter was in Rome when he wrote this. And the setting at that time was that the city of Rome had recently been burned. It was burned by Nero. He was the emperor at the time. He wanted to make space within the city in order to build up better and and make it more economically friendly. And in order to do that, he had to get rid of some of the sections of town that were run down. You might say the equivalent would be clear out the settlers so that they can build up a nicer development. That's what Nero was doing. And he cleared out by burning, but something that he didn't expect was that when they burned out those buildings, large portion of Rome, when he burned it out, it caught a lot of people in the fire and a lot of people died. It was an unexpected consequence. We know a lot about this from history. And in order to take the pressure off of himself, he placed the blame on the Christians. He said the Christians are the ones that started the fire. And all throughout Rome, in fact, they expelled all of the Christians from Rome, expelled the Jewish people as well from the city of Rome, and then sent persecution all throughout the Roman Empire. The Apostle Peter writes this from Rome, but he writes it to believers that are in Galatia. That's modern-day Turkey. And that's listed in the opening verses, the places where those Christians were. And he wrote to them, and he wrote saying things like, you might just experience suffering and persecution in this life. And that suffering and persecution is not a surprise to God. By the time he wrote that, keep in mind that uh, that Stephen has already been stoned in Jerusalem. The Apostle James has already been killed. Uh, Herod killed James. That was Acts chapter 12, and he did it. The Scripture tells us that Herod killed James simply so that he could endear himself to the Jewish people. Like, what kind of wickedness is that? Was planning to kill Peter the next day when God broke Peter out of jail with an angel. I'll let you read through that, Acts chapter 12, on your own time. And these persecutions have been going on. When Peter writes this, it seems like historically, it seems like he's writing from hiding in Rome, and it's about two to three years before he's going to die himself. And as he writes these words to the believers, he writes to them and he tells them, hold on to the faith. Things may be going wrong in your life right now, but God is not surprised by them. And I want to just echo what he has to say before we read further. I want to echo that thought in your mind. So many of us think that if I do the right things in my life, then all things will go well. That's called karma. It's not Christianity. Christianity is very clear. You follow God and you do the right thing generally, yes, but sometimes things may go wrong. The phrase, you'd be familiar with it, sometimes bad things happen to good people. And maybe you might wonder, well, why is that? God's allowing a work to happen in your life, and it is for your good. Remember the words of Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know, and we know, I hope you know this this morning, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And I won't take the time this morning to walk through the book of Romans chapter 8, but in Romans chapter 8 it lists down a number of problems. 
bad things that happen to good people. And then we come to verse 28 and he says, all of those things. All of them are for good. God's working them together for good to them that love God. Maybe you remember Job. Do you remember Job in the Old Testament? Job was attacked by Satan. And if you remember reading Job chapter 1, Job says, uh, Satan comes before uh, Satan comes before God, and Satan says, Job only serves you because you give him good things. And instead, God says, go ahead, tempt him. Try him. Throw everything you've got at him. And if you read through the book of Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll find out a lot of bad things happened to Job. His seven children died. All of his crops were destroyed. All of his animals were, were slain. In a single day, he goes from one of the richest to one of the poorest. And in the days that follow, he ends up getting sick. The Bible describes him sitting on the side with a broken piece of pottery, scraping the sores. You want to talk about things going bad. Job had not done a single thing wrong. In fact, the Bible says that Job had risen every morning to pray, and he would also pray for his children God, don't let anything wrong happen to my children. And you hear Job's words in Job chapter 13 and verse 15. He makes this statement, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You see, you can trust your heavenly Father. It wasn't God that did those bad things, but God did allow those bad things. And ultimately, God will work all things together for good. And sometimes when you're in the middle of it, like Job scraping those sores, you may not understand it. But it is, as his promise is, for your good. I think of Peter and John when they were arrested at the temple. They'd been preaching at the temple, and they got arrested. And the scripture tells us, this is in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, it tells us that they were brought before the council, and the council beat them. And here's the words that it says, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We want to say, when something goes bad, that must mean God turned his back on me. That's not what God says. The scriptures are very clear. Sometimes suffering will come in our lives and it's for our good and it's for his glory. And we may not see it, friend. I may not see why these bad things are happening in my life, may not understand what's going on until I get to glory. But the promise is he's working it for my good. And you can trust. Can I encourage you this morning? You can trust the hand of your almighty heavenly father. With a mindset like that, in those moments when a tragedy comes in your life, instead of questioning, God, I did all things right. Why did you take this away from me? Instead of thinking that way, you can know my Heavenly Father does all things well. And when something tragic happens, I can rest in Him knowing that He's still in control. I say all of that to say this. Sometimes, however, God does allow things to come into our life for our correction. You see, He's called us to be holy. 
If you're a believer this morning, you're following the Lord Jesus. If you're his child, he wants you to be holy like he is holy. You should be a reflection of his character. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. I think back to the Old Testament as God called those people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, called them to follow him. And, and all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, he gives promises and he gives curses. The promise you do right, you be holy, I will look after you. You do wrong, you turn your back on me, I will allow punishments to come upon you. We come to the New Testament, and these things by and large are the same way. When we come to the New Testament, you turn your back on God. If you call yourself a child of God and and you live in sin, friend, I'm telling you, He will punish you. Think of the words of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourges every son whom He receiveth. You see, if God loves you as your heavenly Father, if God loves you and you're sinning, He will bring along the chastisement for the very reason to bring you back. It's loving when you... We've spoken about this many times over the last few weeks. When you chasten your child, when you punish your child, it is for the reason that you love them. You don't do that out of anger. Your child disobeys. If you have anger, you pause. Step back from that for a moment. Have Junior go and wait for you in his bedroom. Come take care of it later. Pause. You don't spank your child in anger. But if you don't bring any punishment, you don't love your child. And the same thing happens with our Heavenly Father. If He just allowed you to sin and live in your sin... There's no punishment for your sin. There's no love coming from Him. He's just letting you run into your sin. That's a terrifying thought. He gives the opposite idea two verses later. This is Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 8. But if if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all of the children of God are partakers of chastisement, if you don't have chastisement, Hold on for a second and let this word shock you. Then are you bastards and not sons. In other words, you don't even belong in the family. You just act like you're there, but you're not really a part of the family. So if, the, if you are able to go through your life, living your Christian life, and you're able to come to church on Sunday and sing Tanobada, and you're able to sing, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, but then on Monday to Saturday, you can go and live a sinful life, and that doesn't bother you, and God doesn't chastise you. This is a terrifying thought, Scripture's words, you aren't a part of the family, I hope we allow those thoughts to sink into us. Look at verse number, here's Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 8. Uh, sorry, verse number 11. Verse number 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In the midst of receiving the punishment from God, it does not seem joyous. Now you go, If your mom or your dad spanked you when you were a child, 
If you were like me, you were not standing there going, oh, this is so exciting. I'm so, I'm so looking forward to the next time. This is great. Could, can we do this one more time, please? No. No, chastening for the moment seems joyous. In other words, you don't really enjoy this. It is for your good. It's going to help you to grow. But my goodness, I don't want to have another spanking dad. Please, no. And here is this, the fruit that comes out of it, he so, says in the latter half. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields fruit. It brings, there's a reason that you go through the punishment. It yields fruit. And what is the fruit? The fruit is peaceable fruit of righteousness. I'm glad that our Heavenly Father does not allow His children to just continue on in sin. He chastens us, causes us to come back to Him, do the right thing, and it will yield fruit. That chastening yields fruit. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. You can't see righteousness. You can't see it. Righteousness is something that's going on on the inside, but you can see the fruit of righteousness. It's peaceableness. I might just ask the question this way. Do you live peacefully with your neighbors? Do you seek to live peacefully? Because the joyous fruit that comes from the Heavenly Father's chastisement is righteousness that's in my life, and it will manifest itself as peaceableness. Here's just a few more verses after this. is Hebrews 12 and verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see God. As a believer, we're to be seeking a holy life. We're to be seeking a peaceful life, looking to have peace with those that are around you. You might think of it this way. If you live right with God, you will seek to live right with your neighbors. If you live right with God, you will seek to live right with your neighbors. And so I might just ask, are you right with God? God has made it possible for you to be right with Him. He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to take our sin upon the cross so that you and I can be made right with Him. If you find yourself this morning in a category that can Monday to Saturday bypass the PNG Power Electric Meter or Wednesday the 10th of January walk in and loot Papendos and then wear those clothes to church on Sunday, if you're able to do that, I dare say you're not a child of God. For if you live that way, He will chasten you. And perhaps this morning as you reflect upon your week and you reflect upon the way you're living, maybe these words would be a shock and a scare to you. And allow the words of Scripture to draw your heart back to Him, for He has made Himself available. I think of the words of Romans 5 and verse 8. But God commends His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he continues on in verse 9, Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So either while you are a believer, God is chastening you for your sin, or you're an unbeliever and He's heaping up His wrath to one day pour out upon you, you don't have to be in the second category you can put your trust in the Lord Jesus. And I want to focus today on Peter's clear instructions here on the ways that we should live. 
and I'll just make it this way. We'll see it in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3. You need to live right. Live right for the right reason. You need to live right and do so intentionally and consistently. Let's see the first one. Live right for the right reason. Live right for the right reason. I wonder why it is when you do right, I wonder why it is that you do what you do. Are you living right? Maybe, perhaps that's because it's what somebody else has told you you're supposed to do. And I'll be honest, a lot of us would prefer to just live that way. Just tell me what to do, I'll do this. Tell me not to do that, I won't do this. We all know the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And I think that every single one of us would say, that's right, you shouldn't kill. And then you start to think, but why shouldn't you kill? And if you're able to think through the why behind, then you understand that the reasons that we do right extend beyond just this is what I've been told to do or told not to do. There's a reason behind it. If you don't have those whys, then the day might come when you just get really, really angry. You know, thou shalt not kill, you know it, and you know that it's a a rule, but you know that today I'm really, really angry. And that person has just done something that I just can't get over, and in the heat of the moment, you might just break that law. Or maybe you know that, that you're not supposed to commit adultery, but then maybe one day you've gotten too close to somebody and your heart's gone too far and you find yourself stepping over the boundary. But if you don't have an understanding of the why, you won't know where to stop. I think of the different reasons why people would do right. Maybe it's something they've been told or maybe they're afraid that they're going to get caught doing wrong, or maybe they're afraid that they might get embarrassed, or maybe they're afraid of the threat of punishment, at which point, if they can do it quietly and nobody knows, then they would still do wrong. And I hear Peter telling us this morning, do right for the right reason. So look at 1 Peter 1, verse 13. This is just a few verses before what we've already read. Look back to verse 13. Wherefore, he says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourself after the former lust of your ignorance, but as he which has called you to be holy is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, as it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So why do you do the right thing? It's because you are a reflection of the Lord Jesus. That's why you do the right thing. Because you as a Christian are to be as he is. So he says, gird up the loins of your mind. A few weeks ago, I used this illustration. Ancient days, they had long flowing robes. And to gird up your loins, it meant literally you grab those robes, pull them up, tuck them into your belt. Because when you go into battle, you don't want to trip on your own robes. Or you're going to work in the field, you don't want to have the robe getting in the way. So to gird up your loins is grab that rope, robe, stick it up inside of your belt. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. And I think that if you're honest this morning, you might agree with me that many times our mind can be all over the place. And so what he says is grab up, gird up the loins of your mind. Grab all of those errant 
thoughts that are going different ways. Pull them together. Get control of what you're thinking about. And then be obedient children of the Father. So we're going to follow His commands. And we're not going to just do it because that's what we're supposed to do, like tick a box and I did this right, I didn't do that wrong. I'm going to be obedient. I am going to let go of my former lusts, the ways that I used to think in my old life, I'm going to let those go. And I will be like, this is his words of verse 15 and 16, I will be like the one who has called me. He is holy. So as he is holy, I need to be holy. So why don't you kill? Thou shalt not kill. Why don't you kill? Because every single person is an image bearer of God. And when you kill, you take a life of someone who God has created. You are offending the one who created them. Why don't you commit adultery? Because when you commit adultery, you destroy the picture of Christ in the church. Ephesians chapter 5. He gave himself for the church. You and I as husbands should love our wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. When someone commits adultery, they're destroying that image. This is why we do the things we do. We do them because we're a reflection of him. His holiness should be coming through in our lives. Why don't you steal? Because that's not the way God is. God is a giving God. He never takes. We're to be a reflection of Him. He always gives. So here's what Paul says, Ephesians 4 and verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more. And that would be enough. If we just said live a moral life, you could stop the verse there. But there's more to it because we as Christians are to be a reflection of our Lord. So he continues to... to, give instruction instead of stealing do what let him labor go get a job work working with his hands the thing which is good for what reason that he may have to give to him that needs you see we as christians are to be a reflection of our lord that's the reason we do the right thing we don't steal. It's not because somebody might slap our wrist or you might spend time in jail. It's because I'm to be a reflection of Him and His character is a giving character, not a taking character. And so we're to live right, be holy like God is holy. Don't think, oh, will I get caught or what are the consequences? Or it's easy to get, this one gets me, it's easier to get permission Uh, Easier to get forgiveness than permission. That's rubbish thinking. There's a right way to live. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Second, we saw already live right for the right reasons. The second one is to live intentionally and consistently. Live intentionally and consistently. So what's it like to be godly living? Live intentionally and live consistently. Remember that you are being watched. Whatever whatever life stage you are in, you are being watched. Parents, we said this last week, your children are watching you. And so you live right, but you also live intentionally right, consistently right. Your children are watching you. Uh, Adults, your co-workers 
are watching you. Young people, other young people are watching you. I remember when I was growing up, there was a boy that was about four years older than me, and I always looked up to him. I was just a little guy, but I was watching that boy that was four years older than me, and I watched him go all the way through and graduate grade 12, and he was a part of our church, and then he went on to university, and every time he would come back from university, he was always faithful in our church, and I remember being just a small boy and watching him grow. He had no idea, and I don't even think to this day that, he's, that I've ever told him that I was watching him, but I was watching him. There are people that are watching you, And they're looking to see, how is it that I'm supposed to live? There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. The Apostle Paul made the statement to the believers as he wrote. He said, be followers of me. If you have no other example, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. And so if you can put yourselves in the same shoes as Paul and say to those that are watching, hey, I don't know who you are that's watching my life, but I'm going to be a follower of Jesus and I'll give you a good example you can follow me as well. And so I'm going to walk through chapter 2 and chapter 3. I'm going to point out some of these things that Peter tells us that we should do in our lives. Here's the first one is in verse number 1. He says, put away any wickedness. Put away any wickedness. There's eight of them. I'll walk through them quickly. Here's 1 Peter 2 and verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, that's naughtiness or wickedness, lay aside all malice, And all guile, that's deceit. Put aside all wickedness, put aside deceit and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. So a child of God should have no attachment to wicked ways of this world. Let it go. If you need some other ways to think about this, you can remember Ephesians 4, 24 and 26, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers at at, at Ephesus, and he said, Put off your old man, put on your new man. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So as a believer, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, put away any wickedness. And then verse 2. This is chapter 2 and verse 2. Second one, desire the word. Desire the word. Here he says in verse 2. As newborn babes... Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have you ever watched a newborn baby? I'm talking about hours old. Leak, leak, baby straight, yeah, mama, holy man. The baby does two things. Well, three. Baby does two, three things. Eats, it sleeps, it poos. That's it. Mostly eats and sleeps. Eats and sleeps. Eats and sleeps. And you watch that newborn baby. You hold that newborn baby. When the baby opens its eyes, you know what it does? Am I right? I remember holding our, our, our girls, each of them, when they were little, when they are babies. I held them this way. I'm left-handed. As I hold him this way, hold that little baby, and, and as soon as I hold that little baby, that little baby just. That one right there. She'd be quiet for about two minutes trying to get anything out of my finger. Good luck. <laughs> this one doesn't work. Sorry. 
but at least it would slow her down. And as a baby, you have this picture, as a newborn baby, that's what he said in verse 2, as a newborn baby, what should a believer be doing? Desire the sincere milk of the word. That's, that's the scriptures. And what's going to happen when you get a hold of the milk of the word? You know what's going to happen? But you go, fat krungia. You just take it in and take it in and take it in, and you're going to get healthy, and you're going to grow from the Word. The Word's going to do its work. It's going So many different works that the Word does. It washes your soul. It cleanses you as you're reading the Word, and the Word is doing its work, and you're growing from it. And then he says in verse 3, I love this little phrase that he just tossed it on the end. If you've tasted that the Lord is gracious... So if you've really tasted that the Lord is gracious, then you'll know that His Word is full of nourishment for your soul. And so come back to the Word and let the Word build you up. Verse 13, he's going to give us our third one. Some of us may not like this one. Submit to the government. Submit to the government. Here's verse 13. How are you as a righteous, godly, peaceable person supposed to live? Verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of them that do well. I want you to hear me well, church, and I know that this is not popular because we want to say, let's just blame all of the society ills on the government. But the words of Scripture are, submit. Submit to the government. God calls us as citizens to submit, and the laws of the land are not to be bypassed just because somebody else is bypassing the law. Just because everybody else is paying a bribe doesn't mean that you should also pay a bribe. I'll be transparent with you this morning. Those of you that have been with us for a very long time would understand We've been trying to get title for our property here for 10 years. This year marks 10 years we've been trying to get a title. In my very first meeting with the lands office, I was told this process will take a very long time, but for 5,000 Kina, we'll have it done in two weeks. We've been in national court for five years because somebody got a title over our property. We don't have a title over our property. Someone else does. Someone else paid a bribe, went the shortcut route, has title over our property. This is what I mean when I say, you don't take shortcuts. You submit to the government and you do the right thing. And I'll tell you, there's been many a sleepless night as the pastoral staff has wondered, what will we do when they come to evict us tomorrow? We've been to the day of eviction. And on the day of eviction, God showed his mighty hand and put a stop to it. And it was by God's grace and not because we took a shortcut. We were able to pillow our heads because we knew we hadn't gone down the shortcut road. And I don't say that to lift us up. I say it to to enforce the idea that there are right things to do and there are wrong things to do. And when somebody's going to go the wrong way, don't follow them. There's no end down that road. 
Do the right thing. See verse 17. He continues the thought in verse 17. Remember Peter writing this two to three years before he dies. He knows what it costs to write these words. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. The king's the one that's going to have him crucified. He will die on a cross. Peter's historically died on a cross. And he says, honor the king. Next, be a good employee. Verse number 18, this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. And froward means crooked or perverse. So be a good employee and don't slack off even when everybody else slacks off. I'll never forget my very first job. I was 17 years old. And in my very first real job, I got hired at the airport to refuel airplanes. I got to say, I was a lucky kid. I don't know. I don't think I would hand the keys to a fuel truck to a 17-year-old. I, I don't know that I would do that, but somebody did it to me. We had three fuel trucks. We had aviation fuel. That stuff is highly combustible. <laughs> Two of the trucks were like, I think, 18,000 liters each, and the other one was 35,000 liters. Like, I could have made a big explosion with those things. 17 years old, and they gave me the keys. I don't understand this. But maybe they were desperate for employees. I don't know. <laughs> and I remember on the very first week, the guy that was training me, and I'll admit, we never got very many breaks. It was go, 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 one aircraft to the next, and we're refueling. And I just remember on that first week, this guy was training me, and we got a break, and he said, follow me, I got to show you something. Okay, I'm learning something new. So I'm following him. He's the experienced employee. And we go, and there's, there was a set of stairs that went up to a loft inside the aircraft hangar. And we, I followed him. We go up the steps, and he goes along the loft, and he's like, ah, this stuff here, it's all just storage, all this stuff. And he said, walk all the way back here, watch back here. And there was a stack of boxes, really tall back there, and then behind the stack of boxes was a mattress. I said, how'd you get a mattress in here? He said, I brought it in at night. Nobody was here, and I brought it in at night. He goes, when there's nothing going on, I just come back here and take a nap. <laughs> Hang on a second. They're paying us to be on the job. He said, if you don't want to sleep, that's fine. I'll sleep. You don't have to sleep. He said, you take the radio. You can go answer the calls whenever I'm sleeping. Just have a good time. Guys, do you realize what he's doing? He's stealing time. When he's stealing the time from the company, he's stealing the money from the company because the company's paying him to be there. That's theft. Let him that stole steal no more, but let him labor with his hands so that he would have to give to those that are in need. We're to be a reflection of God's character. Aren't you glad that on day six in the middle of God making you, that he didn't take a time to go slack off in the corner? You might have been born with three eyes. <laughs> Be a reflection of God's character. I look here also at the words that he uses here. He says at the end of the verse, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, the crooked boss. So be a good employee. And, and, and church, I want you to hear these words well. Even if your boss is good, or if your boss is a jerk, and your boss is cutting corners, and your boss is doing wrong, you're still to do right. Why? Because you are to be a godly reflection of your Lord. That's why we do right. Fifthly, wives, win your husband with your heart. These are practical ways that you and I as Christians are to live. Here's chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. That word conversation in modern English means the words we speak in Old English, it's our lifestyle. And so with your lifestyle, the way that you live, ladies, you will have the opportunity to win, win your husband. The picture used in chapter 3 and verse 1 is a wife that is a believer, but a husband is not. And he says, wives, be in subjection to your husband and live your life in such a way that if your husband does not obey the word, that even though he doesn't have the word, he will still see your life. Now think with me for just a moment. If I come back to that Sunday versus Monday, uh, Monday to Saturday idea, if you come to church on Sunday, but then you go home on Sunday after church, and you're talking to your husband, and you're using filthy language, and you're telling him, what for, and you're yelling at the kids, and you do that Monday through Saturday, who are you winning? Because he's thinking when you leave for church on Sunday morning, he's thinking, she's out of my hair. For it is better to live on the corner of a housetop than in a wide house with a brawling woman. That's the book of Proverbs, twice. And he's thinking... One him kind low to Maria. Praise the Lord that she left. That's the way he's thinking. But Peter says, ladies, there's a different way to live, and there's a way to live in such a way that your heart wins him over. I won't read them. Verses 2 and 3 says there is a way where a lady could try to gain the heart of a man, and that would be through... Uh, the way how she does her hair and the way that she puts jewelry and the way that she makes her, puts her makeup on and makes herself look beautiful on the outside. But he says, don't do it that way. But instead, see verse 4, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Have you ever seen a lady that put on a whole lot of makeup and changed her face when she did that? I'm not saying makeup is wrong, but have you ever seen that? A lady puts a whole bunch of makeup on? Don't let her get caught in the rain. Rain make him not face by go all kinds of shapes. That's corruptible. That's the word corruptible. It falls apart. And the words that are used here in verse number four, let it be the hidden man of the heart which is not corruptible. And so, ladies, if you're trying to win your husband, you won't be able to do that with what you do on the outside, but it'll have everything to do with what's on the inside. And your peaceful, loving, kind heart, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, all through the week, will be what it is that will draw him. It's an ornament of a meek and quiet, quiet spirit. I hear the word ornament, and I think 
just like a necklace. Instead of a gold necklace, this is a necklace of a beautiful and quiet spirit that wins him over. And he calls that a great price, precious ornament in the sight of God. How about for husbands? This is verse 7. It doesn't just go one way. This street goes both ways. Husbands dwell according to knowledge. This is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, to husbands, dwell with them. That's dwell with your wife. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I'll pause there for just a moment. Husbands, have you ever wondered why it is maybe that your prayers aren't getting through? He just said in verse 7 that your prayers will be hindered because you aren't taking care of your wife the way you're supposed to. Your relationship with God is directly tied to your relationship with your spouse. And he says, dwell with them according to knowledge. Husband, dwell with your wife. according. Know what it is that she likes. This past week was Valentine's Day. If that was a sentence of conviction, I'm very sorry. (laughs) It's too late now. (laughs) On Valentine's Day, I was at Waterfront. Uh, Becky Becky has had no Coke Zero in her life for the last couple of weeks. And if you're a Coke Zero drinker, you'll know that the city has been out. There have been no Coke Zeros in the city for the last several weeks. Becky has has bemoaned this fact day after day. I've heard about it every day. She's not addicted. It just makes her life a lot easier. (laughs) And and, and I walked into Waterfront, and I went in just to get a dozen eggs. That's all I needed, just a dozen eggs. And, and, And when I went in, I was parched, and I thought, I'll just grab me a bottle of water, and I went back. I got the dozen eggs, and I walked over to the cold drink section at the back of Waterfront, and and I went back there, and I was just going to go get a bottle of water, and what do you, you'll never believe what I found. You could guess, Coke Zero. They had them in the cold case, and they were all lined up like precious little darlings. They were just, oh, they just looked great. You know what I did? At first, I opened it, and I went, one, two, my arms aren't big enough. I put them all back in, and I went to the front, and I got a shopping trolley. This is no joke. I went to the front, got a shopping trolley, brought it back. If you went looking for Coke Zeros on Wednesday afternoon and they weren't there, I'm sorry. I don't know who took them all. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I did leave a few. Uh, but I went and, and got those Coke Zeros. You know what I was doing? Dwell with her according to knowledge. Now here, it was Valentine's Day. That was Wednesday, the 14th of February. It happens every year on the 14th of February brothers log that away okay I had gotten her special made that day I had gotten her special made cupcakes special valentine's cupcakes that I ordered off of Facebook you might have seen the advertisements too I ordered her special cupcakes you realize she ate one and gave me the other she said thanks but you know how much praise I got for coke zero (laughs) Thank you, Coke, for stocking that. That's all I got to say about that. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Look for things. You, it's intentional, guys. It's intentional. Uh, letter G. Show compassionate, brotherly love toward the brethren. Here's verses 8 and 9. Finally, he says, finally, be you all of one mind, having compassion one of another, Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Not 
be pitiful over in the corner. Be full of pity towards each other. Be pitiful. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. So show brotherly love towards those that are around you. Show kindness and compassion. Listen for ways to help. Hear the words of Jesus. This is John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. The fact that you love each other and care for one another, you show compassion on each other, this is going to be how people know that you are His disciples. And you know what our natural inclination is? Our natural inclination, inclination is the exact opposite. We want to look after myself and take from everyone else. But that's not the reflection of God's character. God's character is, I've been blessed and I don't need and I can give and I can help and I can look after and I can care for. I can bring you into my family. A life of abundance. I care about you. A few years ago, 2007, one of our mountain pastors came to Moresby, attended a pastor's conference here in Moresby, and he was leaving, getting ready to go back to Caramel on the bus. He was down at Arima walked across the road from J-Mart across to the roundabout. At that time, there was a roundabout there. And just as he was crossing the road, he got bumped by a coaster bus. I don't know whose fault it was, whether it was his fault for stepping out in traffic or whether it was the driver's fault for driving too fast. But when it happened, punted him across the road. He collapsed, passed out when he got hit. He collapsed scraped up his side, his face was all scraped up, his arms scraped up, and when he hit the ground on the other side of the road, unconscious, you tell me what the crowd did. They robbed him. They descended upon him, emptied his pockets, took his backpack, took everything he had, and left him laying there. That's the way of the world. It's the exact opposite of what you and I have been called to do. What are we called to do? Reflect the character of our Savior so that when we see someone in hurting, we go to them, not to take from them, but to give to them help and care and show compassion. And so live with an intentional heart that says, I want to be like my Savior. Wash wounds and meet needs and show compassionate care. Why? Because the gospel changed our life. Life is no longer about me. If I'm in Christ and a new creature, life is no longer about me. Now, I want to close with this thought. Come back to 1 Peter 2, verse 9. I jumped over this one, and I want you to see it. This is 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. He says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, I love those names. And I love the fact that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired Peter to write those words about us. You are a peculiar people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you should show forth the praises of Him that called you. Do you hear an echo of the phrase, have the character that God has? He's called you, peculiar people, to be like He is. 
And He's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now you're the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now you've obtained mercy. And I think of the Old Testament, as God said that to His people in Deuteronomy. And He said, you were slaves. You were back there in Egypt and slaves, and I called you out of Egypt, and I called you my son. And I've called you to be a peculiar people, Israel. I've called you to do amazing things, and I'm going to make out of you a royal priesthood. And then he comes to the New Testament, to us that have put our trust in the Lord Jesus. And he says, I've called you to be a peculiar people. I've called you to be a royal priesthood. I've called you to be a chosen generation. You are a different people than you used to be back in the old days. Before you came to Christ, you were different then, and now you're very different. And I think that the best example we have of royal is the royal family. There's a guy in the royal family that we don't talk about very often, but he's very much important. His name is Prince George of Wales. George is 10 years old now. We know very little about George and his life because his parents, Kate and William, sorry, I'm an American, it takes me a minute to think about that. <laughs> Kate and William, his parents, are very careful about his privacy. You go and look it up. Good luck trying to find out information about little George. But William and Kate have protected him, and they've kept him hidden away from the public eye. Probably has a lot to do with William's mom and how much the press was in their face. Do you realize that George is second in the line of succession? He's two heartbeats away from being king. Charles, William, George. There's something that, there's a lot that we don't know about George, but there's something that I do know about George. George wasn't running around in the streets last night throwing rocks at signs like other little kids do. You know why? Royals don't do that. There's a certain way that royals live. There's a certain way that they're taught. In fact, I have a really strong feel feeling that his dad, William, sits him down quite often and says, Son, this is the way that we will act because we're royal. We do these things and we don't do these things. One day, son, you're going to take my place. And I think to myself... If that's the best I've got, what does that look like as I transfer it over and I hear these words, you're a chosen generation and you're a peculiar people. You aren't to act like the world acts. You are to be a reflection of your Father. You are to be the following Him in His footsteps. And I know we'll never take His place, but we are His royal family. We are His chosen generation, and we are to act different than we did when we were in our old ways. So I hope that today we've seen that God has brought us out of darkness and into light to be a different people, and there's a right way for us to live as a reflection of His character. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the chance to spend time together around Your Word today. I pray that your name would be glorified as we seek to live right following you. Thank you for the grace you've bestowed upon us.
Would you be with your people this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.